Uh, if we are to discuss how to restore religious freedom uh, and freedom in general in regard to states' rights, we've got to make some acknowledgments and qualifications up front. Nevertheless, there is work we can do. There is work that needs to be done. Now remember that this project focuses mainly on things average individuals can do to restore freedom in this country. We've already addressed what I consider those areas where we can have the most impact by far in education, in welfare, and in local government. Taking control to the maximum extent possible in these three areas has got to be the main priority. And much of what needs to take place in these three areas will keep the average individual uh, busy for years, if not for a lifetime. And if we can't start there, particularly with education, if we can't make that step where the treading is easy, there's no sense in trying to do it where it's going to be harder. So trying to concentrate on issues above and beyond those things in scope of government and scope of governmental power will only detract from the primary tasks that most people are able to do. As we can quickly see, most of the steps that need to be taken in regard to states' rights will have to come to the level of state representatives, state assemblies, and things like that. So there's simply no magic key we can turn. There's no one hand we can shake, no organization we can join in and of itself, or one person we can vote in, should we even be so lucky as to have such a perfect candidate. None of these things will magically transform the nation into a state's rights paradise overnight, should such a thing exist. With that said, however, there are still things average people can do toward restoring freedom in states' rights. So let's discuss what those things are. First, self-education, again, is a refrain. It's always in order. Just as with local government, most people have no idea even of the names of their state legislatures, leaders, uh, learn who they are. Learn everything you can about them. Learn their beliefs, their platforms, everything about their voting history. Learn about your state governmental system. Learn about its branches, its departments, its procedures, its budgets. The supply of information here is endless if you want to go get it. Why not learn some of your state history while you're at it? Do your state and local uh, historical societies or museums, are, are they out there? Are there some of them? Check out, check it out. If there are, go learn from them. In my experience, state and local history, as well as state and local government, are not well emphasized at all in public school curricula, if they're emphasized at all. Most students graduate with little knowledge at all in these areas uh, to an even worse degree than in other areas. And that means that such education is up to you. You'll probably find out some interesting connections, uh, considering like the wealthy families who founded your state and their connections stretching all the way back to the seats of power in early colonial times. Special interests uh, tend to be homebrewed. They tend to be inbred in many cases. Uh, you can find out about those at the state level. At any rate, knowledge of who representatives are, how the system works, what various laws are, what issues are on the floor or in queue, are all part of this learning process. Learn it all, because you'll need to know the information. Secondly, individuals should start websites monitoring state officials, just as I described for local governments. Such a site should be dedicated only to state matters, 
not mixed with local politics unless it's absolutely necessary, not mixed with national politics or political campaigns or things like that, except in as much as those things impinge directly on the state issues. The goal here is to have ultimate transparency for state uh, issues. That is the ultimate form of education, revealing to people things they would not normally find or know or understand on their own. And it's a, it's a great service to your fellow citizens. Since most people have no clue about such things, uh, they don't even think beyond the normal media if they watch the news, even. And they wouldn't know where and how to find important information even if they did consider it. You can provide an invaluable service to a state political clearinghouse website or blog. And those of you who have the ability, go do it. And since so few people will take the initiative to go do something like that, it could be the greatest contribution you could make to the cause of liberty, especially if you have the skills, like I said, which, by the way, there are not a whole lot of skills required to operate a blog, uh, and if you have the time to do it. And if you're looking for a way to contribute, it's almost imperative that you begin now. Part of your own educational process will include learning a vast array of issues where states' rights can restore freedom. One of the best places to observe some of these currently uh, is the work being done by the Tenth Amendment Center. This is an independent organization not connected to uh, American Vision. Uh, and this acknowledgement of what they're doing, that, that it's good, is by no means a blanket endorsement of everything they do, um, although it's also not to say otherwise either. Uh, I simply don't know everything that goes on in that organization or other organizations like it, uh, and so I need to point that out and say it up front. But the work that they are doing is in fact admirable in both scope and detail. And I only mention them because they're the guys that have organized and begun to do it. They've drawn up model legislation for a host of issues which states can apply in their own jurisdictions. Now just a few of those areas and things on which they're working currently are these, and the list is, is pretty impressive. Nullification of federal health care, state control of the National Guards, okay, freedom from federal firearm registrations and regulations, protections of interstate commerce, protections of local food sovereignty and food commerce, protections from the National ID card, which was the Real ID Act and stuff like that, protections from TSA offenses, uh, nullification of unconstitutional legal tender laws, nullification of cap and trade and other EPA regulations, state regulations of federal tax collection and revenue, things called sheriff's first laws, which uh, protect against unwarranted federal policing activities intruding on local citizens, and even industrial hemp freedom acts. Now this is an impressive list. But I want to tell you the potential is even greater than this, and I'll discuss that in a moment, that a move practically to nullify Roe versus Wade could be affected at the state level and indeed has already been attempted at least once. And it failed by an 11 percent margin, mainly due to the fact that they would not allow any exceptions um, to the abortion law at all, even if a mother's life was in immediate danger of things of that nature. And it could probably go beyond this as well. At any rate, it's helpful to find your local chapter of the Tenth Amendment Center and ask how you can help 
get the word out in your community. Now, 10th Amendment Center also works for issues which may sound uncomfortable to some Christians, maybe to some of the Christians following uh, this lecture series, such as state control over marijuana laws. Uh, but in defense of this, the issue here is not about the personal use or personal stances on marijuana, whether it's medicinal or otherwise or anything else. But the point is about jurisdiction. How does the U.S. Constitution apply to this issue? And many people would argue it does not, and that acquiescing on this one constitutional issue legitimizes all kinds of federal usurpations in all other areas not explicitly enumerated in the Constitution as well. After all, if we submit to the idea that the Constitutional Interstate Commerce Clause applies to the regulation of marijuana within a state, whether you agree with marijuana or not, then that same argument can be used as a precedent when the feds move to regulate other commerce within the state as well. So, Whatever your position on this particular issue, and certainly we have to account for our emotions in regard to things like drug abuse and other epithets, it should not take away from the whole range of other issues that the Tenth Amendment Center is addressing in favor of the Tenth Amendment and of states' rights. It's vital that we not, as they say, throw the baby out with the bathwater, should there be any bathwater to throw out at all. Now, I'll return to nullification and things like that in a moment. Now, having learned about your state reps, you may discover that they themselves have little knowledge or ambition in regard to states' rights or any of these issues. And they'll likely know nothing about the potential uh, that state power offers them and their fellow representatives for reclaiming freedom in the many areas that we have discussed. You could aid your fellow citizens by informing your state reps of these things, of providing them with the information to pursue these avenues. In other words, educating your representatives, educating the politicians. This is still part of the educational process and it's something that an average person could do toward advocating states' rights well within the constitutional bounds of the Tenth Amendment. From that point, from the point of education, we can move on, uh, on to, uh, well, I should say from the point of what can I do now to the thing, the way things ought to be in general. Beyond the immediate practical steps, in other words, there are larger goals, uh, but these are definite, if lofty, goals at which to aim. Educating your rep is one thing, getting them to act, to develop, to introduce, to promote states' rights issues in an assembly are quite another, and getting a movement to, move to, to, to be sustained is, is another. It's here that individual efforts will be limited, but still necessary. And it should not stop us from discussing such, uh, such procedures. The hot button topics uh, are nullification and interposition. Popular books have been written on these topics. Uh, let me talk about both of them just briefly. The doctrine of nullification, as many of you know, was expressed in the Kentucky Resolutions written by Thomas Jefferson, 1798. It was reaction against John Adams' atrocious Alien and Sedition Acts, which enhanced federal deportation powers at the president's whim, essentially, and made the criticism of the administration a criminal act, which was a blatant violation of the First Amendment. 
Jefferson and many other people deemed these acts as unconstitutional for that reason, and they argued that when the federal government passes unconstitutional acts, the states have a right to declare them null and void within their own jurisdictions. And this is what Jefferson wrote in that regard in the Kentucky Resolution. Quote, whenever the general government assumes undelegated powers, its acts are unauthoritative, void, and of no force. For this state power, the resolutions appeal to explicitly to the Tenth Amendment. Nullification, therefore, is a state's declaration that a federal law exceeds constitutional powers and is therefore, uh, uh, thereby considered null and void within that state. Now, at the same time, and in relation to the same issue, James Madison penned the Virginia Resolution, which is singular, unlike the Kentucky Resolutions, which is plural. But it posited a very similar notion that's called interposition. The Virginia version exposited the same view of states' rights, although Madison did refer to it as only a as not only a state's right, but as a duty on the part of the states. In times of federal tyranny, states are, as he said, quote, in duty bound to interpose for arresting the progress of the evil, end of quote. Now, some view that as going beyond mere nullification to active resistance, uh, but it doesn't seem to me to be a necessarily implication of arresting the progress of evil. Either way, uh, it's important. A subsequent review by the Virginia legislature of that resolution asserted that a state declaration could have no legal force upon the federal government itself, but was only an expression of opinion. But even this leaves open the possibility that a state may decide in some way actively to resist, either alone, excuse me, or in concert with other states. At any rate, the idea of states' rights resisting tyranny from legal lords above them comes directly from the history of the Reformation. Uh, particularly Reformation social theory, theological social theory. John Calvin, although to a lesser extent and certainly less systematic extent, Luther has this idea as well. And Calvin's disciples developed the idea of the so-called lesser magistrate who resists impositions of tyranny from above, particularly in cases of religious liberty. It's a biblical and historically Christian concept in which a representative civil ruler acts representatively on behalf of the good of civil liberty against the evil of tyranny, uh, which is the civil magistrate's job, after all. He interposes between the people and the higher rulers to preserve freedom. And this is what, historically, the American Declaration of Independence was. It was an interposition of the colony's representatives in concert against King George III. So in this sense, we can speak of interposition in a more general way without having to accept all of whatever technical terminology people want to stick onto it that's you know, written in Madison's resolution. We can speak the same way generally of nullification in the same way. Uh, we can even celebrate Jefferson's famous dictum in that regard and his fabulous rhetoric in that regard uh, without having to adopt every jot and tittle of the Kentucky Resolves. Therefore, as he said, quote, let no more be heard of confidence in man, but bind him down from the mischief uh, by the chains of the Constitution, by which man, Jefferson meant the civil rulers above them, and by which constitutional chains, he meant the Tenth Amendment. What are some of those lofty goals 
at which state officials could aim. Aside from that long list already referred to uh, from the Tenth Amendment Center a while ago, perhaps the most important and powerful issue for Christians that can be addressed this way by state power is the abomination protected under Roe versus Wade. This was the subject of a very informative lecture by a constitutional lawyer, Herb Titus, given at American Vision's annual conference in 2009. It was entitled, Restoring the Sanctity of Human Life State by State. Now, without going too far in depth into the arguments, all of which I commend you to go listen to, suffice it to say that the Supreme Court decision contains holes in it that can easily be exploited, and more importantly, it rests upon factual assumptions that are today disproven by more advanced knowledge. Therefore, a state could set a precedent with a very well-designed, thoughtfully constructed statute which would effectively displace the ruling of Roe versus Wade, even if Roe versus Wade remains on the books. Now, that sounds strange to a lot of people, but it's a fact. Most Christians don't realize that the legal decision of Roe versus Wade had nothing to do with the determining of when life begins. Okay, that's the aspect of the situation uh, that everyone hears about. It was explicitly not decided by the case. The writer of the opinion, Justice Blackmun, states it explicitly like this, quote, we do not resolve, or we need not resolve, the difficult question of when life begins. When those trained in the respective disciplines of medicine, philosophy, and theology are unable to arrive at a consensus, the judiciary at this point in the development of man's knowledge is not in a position to speculate as to the answer. Now, Blackman goes on to discuss various theories and aspects of that issue, but all of that was superfluous to the actual decision. What this allowed the court to do, however, was subsequently to forbid the states on the same facts only, by the way, from imposing any single view, any of those single views, upon the beginning of life upon their citizens. But the decision was made based on that genius piece of Lincoln's legacy, the 14th Amendment. And the question is, to whom do the constitutional protections of life and privacy apply? The state of Texas, which was Wade in the Roe versus Wade, the attorney, argued that a fetus is a, quote, person within the language of the 14th Amendment. The Supreme Court acknowledged uh, that if this suggestion of personhood is established, the appellant's case, of course, collapses for the fetus's right to life would then be granted specifically by the amendment. The problem was that Texas's application of that amendment to the unborn in legal terms, in legal history, was an absolute novelty. There was nothing explicit in the Constitution saying that. Uh, there was absolutely no legal precedent, unfortunately, for interpreting it that way. Uh, there was no historical precedent from the time of the amendment around the Reconstruction era for such an understanding of it. As such, the court uh, ruled that the application, that this particular application of the idea of person was un unconstitutional. For the 14th Amendment itself clearly defines exactly who are citizens 
and thus whose rights are protected. And this is what it says, quote, all persons born or naturalized in the United States. So there you have it. The Constitution protects only those who are born and not those who are unborn. Now, I think a good argument can be made the other way. I think, but the language of the amendment is in fact terribly unhelpful on this issue. On the surface of it, the idea that the Constitution uh, only protects the rights of the born in the word person is like arguing that Jefferson's Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal and have the natural rights of life, liberty, etc., only technically applies to men and not to women. After all, it says men and not women. So that would be ridiculous. Now this thing, coupled with the other observations the court made, uh, came to conclude that, quote, the word person, as used in the 14th Amendment, does not include the unborn. Yet since the mother was in fact born, she was protected by constitutional rights, and thus her right to privacy trumps any alleged right of life to the fetus, which we see constitutionally doesn't exist. All the court, the court did go on to allow some states to make regulations in regard to the mother's health and thus protect the life of the fetus. Uh, the famous decision, in other words, hinged upon a technical argument over a definition and the application of wording completely unheard of, unforeseen by the people who wrote the amendment. And yet, as I said, the ruling is not airtight and therefore it's not insurmountable. Even beyond what I've said already, uh, yet uh, another very powerful approach is available to the states. While the word person does not apply to the unborn according to the U.S. Constitution and the Supreme Court, there is nothing to prevent states from adopting an amendment to their state constitutions which provides a greater protection of life than that of the United States Constitution. And the beauty of this approach is that the Supreme Court consistently defers to the state constitutions or state court rulings in order to determine the definitions of state laws. So we wouldn't be relying on the definitions you know, teased out of the Constitution. A state could define person to include the unborn and for any laws passed in regard to that definition, the Supreme Court would have to abide by the state's definition if they were going to go, go by all precedent for that case because it afforded a higher protection of life than does the U.S. Constitution. Since the state of Texas didn't have this in place at the time, it appealed to the 14th Amendment of the U.S. Constitution and was judged by federal precedents and the definitions derived from the U.S. Constitution in that arena and therefore the state of Texas lost. But in a future case, if a state did amend its constitution, decide a case, or even perhaps simply pass a statute that properly expanded the protections of life to unborn persons, then any Supreme Court challenge would have to deal with the state definition as a higher protection and sustain it. Now, For this reason today, there are groups advocating so-called personhood initiatives and personhood amendments at the state level and even at the federal level. Uh, Christians in the right to life world uh, simply, uh, especially those who simply follow it as donors and supporters, simply have to learn that a decentralized solution is the best and most likely to succeed. 
The strategy of this once-for-all reversal of Roe versus Wade from the federal level has been absolutely ineffective for almost 40 years now. It's time to go back to something that's worked. It's not to say that it's an impossibility, but had all the time and money from that been focused on local solutions this whole time, you would very, very likely see life more greatly protected in a vast array of states already and the forces of infanticide push to the blue fringes of the nation. You know what I'm talking about. Okay? Those will still accept only, a, those people I'm saying who will accept only a, a single national solution are saying that they, if they cannot outlaw abortion everywhere, then they don't want it outlawed anywhere. And the, cor the, the corollary to that statement is even more startling. If they can't outlaw uh, abortion everywhere, then they'd prefer it to be legal everywhere. Now think about that. So the power of a potential of a decentralized states' rights approach would be evident to everyone if they just think about it. It should immediately become imperative to everyone who cares about the right to life to look for a local or state solution. State officials who are interested in advancing these measures can seek them out, can get involved. The websites are easy to find. Individuals who wish to do what they can, uh, county rights style, could get involved in their local groups, in their local statewide groups that are working in this direction. Ask for direction. Volunteer your time. Inform uh, any and all of your state and local representatives, your senators, other officials of these causes. Put them before them. Okay. This applies directly here to the right to life issues. It really applies to any of the Tenth Amendment issues we've talked about already. Contact your officials' offices. Okay. Ask around locally, among people, among churches. Search the web for local groups, for local communities that are involved in whatever states' rights issue you feel most strongly that you need to get involved in. Find out what's already being done. Don't try to reinvent the wheel. Uh, and if you find a work that you consider worth joining, then get in it and help it. At the very least, you should find such a cause and a group that you feel strongly about or you want to support. And if you can't give your time, if you don't think you can get involved personally, then give money. If you don't you think you have any time to spare or nothing else to contribute, which by the way is almost certainly false, you can at least give money. The causes of life and of liberty can employ uh, 25 or 30 or 50 dollars a month better than your movie channel can or dinner at Applebee's this week. But volunteering to help Volunteering your time is even better yet beyond that. And the truth is most people have spare time to contribute. And if we would quit wasting our time in, in useless hobbies and get involved in something like this for a, a campaign for life or liberty at the state and local level, it would have a much greater impact. Uh, you would have a much greater legacy uh, to be remembered by your friends and children. Uh, that concludes the state's rights talks. We'll. Uh, move on to the next topic, taxation, in the next talk.